In this bulletin, 120 personnel from the Australian Defence Forces sent to Queensland to help with the recovery efforts post-storms and heavy rain. Melbourne Research Centre seeing promising exploration in diabetes cure and an earthquake hits Japan New Year's Day. The Australian Defence Force will be sent into southeast Queensland to help with the recovery from the storms and heavy rain. Federal Emergency Management Minister Murray Watt has confirmed 120 personnel will lead the Gold Coast to uh, Scenic Rim and Logan from Thursday. The assistance comes amid ongoing flood warnings in the state's corner. Capricornia and southeast coast regions, with heavy rainfall also forecast for Brisbane and Sunshine Coast. Really the reason for activating ADF personnel now is that while Queensland had access both internally and through other states to a range of resources leading up to now, the compounding effect of this heavy rainfall and flooding on the damage that we'd already seen with the storms meant that, uh, frankly, Queensland did need a bit of a hand with extra resources uh, and uh, they were brave enough to ask and we we were happy to deliver with that uh, support as well. Authorities are reminding residents that the risk of flash flooding across southeast Queensland remains high and have urged people in affected areas to stay off the roads. Mr Watt has also said the government will continue to monitor heavy rain and storms in New South Wales in the Northern Rivers region. The end of unstable commercial logging in Western Australia could save almost 20,000 square kilometres of forest, the state government says, chopping down native curry, jarra and wandu hardwood in the state's southwest and selling it is banned from Monday this week. Under the new forest management plan 2024-2033, native timbers can only be felled for ecological thinning to enhance forest health and resilience from drought and bushfires. The government has invested $350 million in WA's softwood pine plantations to supply the construction industry with timber. Much of Australia's east coast continues to be lashed with rainfall as wild weather moves south to parts of New South Wales and Victoria. South-east Queensland is waking to the aftermath of a week-long barrage of storms and heavy rain, with the risk of severe storms continuing today, Wednesday. Dozens of Australian Defence Force troops have been deployed across the state to help with the storm's recovery, while authorities continue to restore power to about 11,000 homes. Hundreds of roads have been closed because of flooding, with heavy rainfall increasing the potential for landslides and fallen debris. Dozens of people have needed to be rescued from floodwaters since severe weather began over Christmas. A Sydney man who was found inside his burning apartment on January 1st has died in hospital from critical injuries. The 44 45-year-old man was located in the top floor unit in Meadowbank and treated at the scene for significant injuries. 
He was taken to the Royal North Shore Hospital in critical condition, but later died. Authorities are investigating the cause of the blaze. People living with type 1 diabetes could see a cure within a decade, thanks to the work of Melbourne Research Centre. The Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute has found a way to rewire donated pancreatic cells to produce insulin, countering the damage caused by the condition. Amelia is one of the 134,000 Australians living with type 1 diabetes and depends on daily insulin injections. She was diagnosed five months ago at age 35 and says it has impacted every part of her day-to-day life. It is incredibly exciting, not just the prospect that, yes, in a couple of years, we might have something that can regenerate the cells that make my pancreas produce insulin. That's super exciting. But it's also really exciting just to know that even though we're a smaller number of people with diabetes, there's still research happening. And there's the possibility that for all of us, uh, yeah, we might be able to say at at least goodbye to some of this 24-7 job. The medication is set to begin preclinical animal trials with hopes treatment will be available within a decade. Court Systems Victoria, CSV, has apologised for any distress caused by a cyber attack on the audio-visual technology network used in the state's courts and tribunals. The breach occurred between the 1st of November and the 21st of December and involves unauthorised access to files saved on the network, including video and audio recordings and transcriptions. In the statement, CEO Louise Anderson says Court Services Victoria acknowledges the incident will be upsetting for those involved in hearings during that time. However, she notes that almost all court and tribunal hearings are held in the public and are not confidential. CSV says no other systems or personal records were accessed. Victorian Premier Ben Carroll has told ABC News the government is working to identify the source of the attack. I understand court operations have not been affected. I understand that this attack has been essentially confined and uh, all court cases, uh, all hearings, uh, all evidence, all procedure is, uh, being th- is thoroughly protected and uh, we're very confident that we'll get to the bottom of it. In international news, the government says it's legal for Australians to fight for other nations' armies. Amid reports, an Australian serving in the Israeli army has died in Gaza. ABC News has reported that dual Australian-Israeli citizen Leo Savan died in an ambush on the 19th of December. According to ABC, Mr Savan who lived in Israel, was called up to the Israeli Defence Forces after the Hamas attack on Israel in on 7th of October. Government spokesman Mark Butler has expressed condolences to Mr Savan's family and says it is legal for Australians to serve in foreign armies. But he says that would not apply to Ali Bazi, an Australian killed by Israel Israel in Lebanon, who Hezbollah later claimed as a fighter. 
Hezbollah is a listed terrorist organisation. It is a criminal offence for Australians to engage in hostile activities overseas, other, as I just said, other than as part of the formal armed forces of a foreign nation. Uh, there are very clear penalties in Australian law, have been for a long time, which include sanctions like the possible cancellation of passports. Mr Butler says the government is seeking to confirm reports about both men. Russia has rained missiles down on Ukrainian capital, Kiev, and other cities after Russia warned of an intensifying air bombardment. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky says four were killed in the attacks, and the mayor of Kiev says at least 41 were wounded in the city. Multi-storey buildings and civilian infrastructure were severely damaged in the explosions. One local resident says it was terrifying moment. I heard a very loud explosion. We live in the furthest block from here, but our closet plastic windows got opened up. I thought that the apartment block was hit because there was a very bright light. The attacks are part of a days-long escalation. Less than 24 hours after the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, said Moscow would intensify strikes on Ukraine. He says the attacks are in response to an unprecedented Ukrainian attack on Russian city Belgorod, which he labelled as a terrorist attack. South Korea's opposition leader, Lee Jae-myung, has been stabbed in the neck while touring Busan, but hospital officials say the injury is not life-threatening. Local media is reporting that Lee was attacked by an unknown man while touring the site of a potential airport. Video footage captured a man approaching Lee in the crowd before he fell to the ground bleeding at the neck. An unofficial, an official from um, the Pusan National University Hospital said Lee has said since been transferred to Seoul after undergoing emergency treatment and CT scans. Lee's Democratic Party has condemned the incident as an act of terror and a threat to democracy. The assailant was subdued and arrested at the scene. A powerful earthquake that hit central Japan on New Year's Day has killed at least five people, as police and local authorities report cases of bodies being pulled from rubble of collapsed buildings. The quake with a preliminary magnitude of 7.6 struck the middle of the afternoon on the 1st destroying buildings, knocking out power to tens of thousands of homes and prompting residents in some coastal areas to flee to higher ground. It also triggered waves about one metre high along Japan's long western seaboard as well as in neighbouring South Korea. Daniel Smith, an American resident of Japan, could feel the quake in the town of Toyama. Uh, The first, uh, it just started very slowly. And, and and everybody kind of left it off. You know, they thought, ah, oh, this is this is uh, kind of humorous, you know, on New Year's Day. And then it's then it's just a violent shaking. I mean, violent shaking. Army personnel were dispatched to help with the rescue operations, while one local airport was shut down after the tor- the quake tore open cracks on the runway. Prime Minister 
Anthony Albanese says 12 Australians who were on board a Japan Airlines flight that collided with a Coast Guard aircraft and burst into flames are safe and accounted for. All 379 people on board the flight escaped the burning airline after the collision at Tokyo's Hanada Airport. Although five of the six crew on the smaller plane died in the incident. The smaller Coast Guard plane was heading to Nagata Airport on the Japanese west coast to deliver aid following the devastating earthquake on New Year's Day. Prime Minister Albanese says the aircraft collision was tragic, but all Australians involved have escaped uninjured. Tragically, there was a a plane crash at Haneda Airport uh, in Tokyo. Uh, We understand that there were 12 Australians on board that Japan Airlines flight, but all of those people are safe and accounted for. However, any Australians in need of emergency consular assistance should contact the Australian Government's 24-hour consular emergency centre. Crews are working to restore power to almost 50,000 Victorian homes and businesses after wild storms lashed the state. A severe thunderstorm warning was issued for Bendigo, Maryborough, Castlemaine, Kennerton, Ballarat, the Ballerine Peninsula and Greater Melbourne. The Bureau of Meteorology has warned the risk of thunderstorms and flash flooding would persist into Wednesday today. In tennis, US Open champion Coco Goff has started her 2024 season with a victory over fellow American Claire Liu at the Auckland Tennis Classic. The world number three used her powerful forehand well but took time to find her range, finally securing a 6-4 and 6-2 win. Goff defeated Arina Sabalenka in the US Open final for her first Grand Slam title last year, boosting expectations for her Australian Open campaign later this month. And in Perth, Novak Djokovic overcome a wrist injury to defeat Czech opponent Diri Leheka and kept alive Serbia's hopes for qualifying for the United Cup quarterfinals. The world number one was troubled by his wrist during practice and with the injury requiring intense treatment from his physio. Clear to play, the 24-time Grand Slam winner was on track for an easy victory after winning the first set and shooting out a 3-1 lead in the second half. One local Serbian fan says Djokovic always overcomes his obstacles. His strengths are he, he never gives up, and this is why and this is why the that's this is how we like we're very proud of him because they've been committing in Australia, and um, yeah I think he'll do really really good. I think he'll he'll take this Grand Slam. He'll take the Australian Open for sure. And now a look at today's weather. Wednesday, third of January, Broome is sunny at thirty-five. Perth is mostly sunny with 33. Adelaide is cloudy at 27. Melbourne has some showers, possible storm at 27. Hobart, a shower or two at 27. Aubrey-Wodonga, showers, possible storm at 33. Canberra, also showers, possible storm at 28. 
Wollongong is partly cloudy at 27. Sydney is mostly sunny at 29. Newcastle is partly cloudy at 30. Brisbane is much the same at 30. Townsville is partly cloudy at 34. Cairns is a shower or two at 33. Alice Springs is increasing in clouds at 43. Darwin is having a shower or two, possible storm at 34. The Torres Strait Islands are having that similar at 33. Welcome back. I'm your host, Nari Pakai, and you're listening to NITV Radio. Still to come on the show, NITV's Bertrand Taganame has a conversation with Jolene Pantarero, now living in Nullumbi in northeast Arnhem Land with her four-year-old daughter, have been accepted into the community by the young people. But first, let's take a look at some of the stories from NITV news team Summer Yarn Series, sharing deadly stories from mob during 2023. Nunga Yamachi athlete is making a name for himself, leaping onto the national track and field scene. High jumper Jonathan Garlett credits part of his ability to take to the air to traditional remedy from a bird that never leaves the ground. 22-year-old Jonathan Garlett took out the WA state title with a personal best jump of 1.95 metres. While it's a long way off the Australian record of 2.36 metres, it was enough to get him through to the national championships, even after a five-year absence. You know, to come out and win gold, that wasn't on my mind, honestly. Like, it feels like a fairy tale story, eh? But that's the big shock, being away from the sport for so long. No words can describe what I'm feeling. Garlett won the gold medal on a sprained ankle sustained while playing basketball in the lead-up to the state titles. He credits his uncle's emu oil for his quick recovery. That emu oil, that helped out so much because yeah, it helped get flexibility in my ankle and most importantly, it worked. I got over the bar. And um, yeah, I think that's um, you know the secret stuff, Johnny's secret stuff. When he's not competing or training, the young Noongar Yamaji man travels around Australia performing with his father. Yeah, so I've been legally self-employed since I was 15. You know, I do a lot of consultancy work. Um, I do a lot of welcomes with my old man, smoking, dancing. So I perform on the Yeriki, uh, didgeridoo. So I get to travel the country doing that, just playing Yeriki. Jonathan is currently the only Aboriginal athlete competing in high jump at a national level. He's encouraging others to try the sport. I feel like I need to encourage a lot of other blackfellas that, um, you know, that are, that are quick, that have got hops. I tell you what, I've seen a lot of talent out here in these, um, especially within these remote communities. Karen Cox, NITV News. Our mob are known for passing down stories through generations by word of mouth in Sydney's western suburbs. An elders in resident program is giving new life to those yarns. Each week, a band of four uncles show up in Blacktown Arts Centre to sit down and share their stories with people from the community. A cup of tea and a yarn is how Bigumble man Uncle Wes Mann spends most Friday mornings. 
As a custodian of his grandfather's creation and Dreamtime stories, storytelling is a central part of his identity. That's culture. Without stories, there's no culture. At 101 years old, Uncle Wes remembers a time when his storytelling was bound by the white man's rule. So he said, we don't let you tell stories, but they're not allowed to talk about the first fleet, not allowed to talk about the Stalin generation, not allowed to talk about massacres, not allowed to talk about Stalin land. Today, Uncle Wes is one of four elders in residence at the Blacktown Arts Centre in Sydney's West, where the community converge every Friday morning to sit and listen. For Gundan Gurra and Darug man Uncle Greg Sims, it's key to ensuring the knowledge of his old people is not lost. Everything I know has come from my old people. They're all gone now, passed away. They left me with all the values and the stories and the knowledge and all that wisdom. He left it with me to take on into that next generation. As a renowned artist and cartoonist, Uncle Danny Eastwood takes a different approach to his storytelling. A page and a pen are the tools he uses to continue conversations about his own culture. I grew up uh, in an era we weren't supposed to be seen or be heard and uh, I tried to teach better, to achieve better than that. And, you know, they can learn anything and do anything. Across the room, Uncle John Farrington flicks through the pages of his life. At nine years old, he became a ward of the state and was taken to Sydney. I talked to people about my experience with me going into family, foster parents white foster parents you know they didn't let me interact with aboriginal people while he continues to search for answers about his own past he hopes sharing his story will help others overcome their challenges the aboriginal elders are so important so vital to the community because they have so much knowledge that most people don't know these things should be told they should never ever they should never be forgotten Knowledge holders coming together on a mission to ensure their stories are passed on. Emma Kellaway, NITV News. Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio. Welcome back. I'm your host, Nori Pakai. Coming up, Jolene Ponteriero secured her dream job in the top end after graduating environmental science at Charles Darwin University. In a conversation with NITV Radio's Bertrand Taganame, Jolene shares her journey through education, securing work and life in Nalimbi in northeast Arnhem Land. Graduating in environmental science at Charles Darwin University has helped Jolene Pontoriero secure her dream job in the top end. Together with her Darcy, her four-year-old daughter, they are living the dream in Nolumbo in northeast Arnhem Land, where they've been adopted by the Yolno people. And Jolene is joining us on NITV Radio today to share her story of an environmental scientist, STEM champion, working seamlessly with traditional owners and immersed in culture. Welcome to NITV Radio, Jolene. Hi, how are you going? You landed uh, a top job thanks to your qualification in environmental science at Charles Darwin University. 
Tell us about uh, the dream job you landed. After I graduated from my bachelor's degree in environmental science, I applied to Rio Tinto for their vacation student program because I wanted to do some vacation work during the school holidays. But when they interviewed me, they offered me a full-time graduate role. This is a job in uh, the type of education you are doing. A lot of graduates usually end up doing something completely different from what they started until they learned something in um, their line of education. So for you, it was just straight from uni to work, no transition. A little bit different. I spent six years studying my degree part-time, working full-time. I worked for the Australian Public Service and more recently I had a position with CSIRO, the Commonwealth Scientific Industrial Research Organisation. I was working in the education sector as an academic coordinator for the Young Indigenous Women STEM Academy. Whilst I was working that position and helping young girls navigate their interests in STEM areas, so science, technology, engineering, mathematics, I actually graduated myself and I realised that I wasn't working in my interests, so that was environmental science. So once I graduated, I sadly left that position. I was quite upset because I really enjoy working with um, the young Indigenous women across the Northern Territory um, to navigate their paths towards their ambitions of studying at university. But in doing that, I realised that I wasn't following my passion and dreams. So that's, yeah, that's why I ended up applying for the Rio Tinto vacation program and then they came back with a full-time grad role working as an environmental advisor up here in Nullumboy so it's something that I really couldn't turn down at the time. It's your dream job. What does a a dream job uh, consist of? Because you're very happy to be working on country especially and uh, immerse yourself in culture. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your job. What you do. (laughs) So um, as a environmental advisor up here and because of my Indigenous heritage, any opportunity that presents where I can work with the traditional owners, so the Yongle people up here in the East Arnhem region, my work will Rio Tinto fully support that. So within my first month of commencement, I had the opportunity to support a flora and fauna survey for an area and as part of those surveys so any surveys that we do on country we invite the traditional owners to come along on those surveys so we can walk the country with the TOs so that's when I first met one of the senior elders here Mandika Marika My colleagues um, just seen the benefit of how important it is that we provide opportunities for Indigenous employees to work with Indigenous people on their land because the relationship just transformed to a whole other level where we can work collaboratively on joint visions. So the purpose of that survey was to identify um, different bird species living in the area, different flora types, so endemic species up here in the East Arnhem region. And it was an opportunity for the traditional owners to teach me about their country because I'm Jaru and Aranda. So Jaru is from the Kimberley and Aranda is from Alice Springs region. So learning about another person's culture and country as an Indigenous person is just so special and it 
just really ignites my passion within environmental science and that opportunity to learn about someone else's country is you can't compare it to anything else once you've experienced it. Now, as someone who navigates Western uh, science, is fully immersed in culture and uh, champions STEM while working in your dream job, uh, are you able to keep uh, promoting STEM uh, within uh, the younger First Nations uh, generations, help them pursue the same education and career pathways as uh, yours? That's something that I'm really passionate about is looking at what other opportunities can be provided for Indigenous people who are interested within that environmental science field. There's a recent term that's being brought to light as part of the two ways learning systems combining Western sciences knowledges with traditional knowledges. It's called traditional ecological knowledges. So that's recognising the thousands of years of knowledge that traditional landholders have regarding fire management, ecosystem management, looking after country. It's recognising that in a Western system. So paying tribute to that, utilising it. There's huge opportunities with doing that. So that's why I'm completing my um, certificate for in training and assessment. So with that certificate and with my bachelor's degree in environmental science, once I get the certificate, I have the opportunity to teach um, other certificates that fall underneath that. For example, certificate four in conservation and land management, biology, environmental sciences, fire management. So if I can provide as a trainer who can work effectively with traditional owners, keeping them engaged because of all my experience working with um, youth in the past. I just know that I have huge strengths in that area and I have an opportunity to give back to the community via that avenue. So, yeah, we can see what happens in the future. That was part one of a conversation with Jolene Ponderiro. Stay tuned for part two after the break. Welcome back. You're with NITV Radio. We return for part two of Jolene Pontoriro and her talk, Living in Her Home, Now in Nullumbi, Arlem Land, and Her Day-to-Day Living in Community. Is Darcy uh, your four-year-old daughter following in the same steps? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much so. So my dad, unfortunately, he had to deal with me catching snakes and bringing them home from about 10 years old. Um, and he was the exact same when he was younger. Um, he used to say to me, Jolene, I don't mind you bringing them home, but just make sure that you put the logs back where you found them because I'd roll logs over looking underneath them for like skinks and other animals and that he'd have to try and mow around them on the tractor and he's like and he'd have to get off and he'd have to roll them back in place um but Darcy she has because um I'm an environmental scientist and cane toads it's a really hot topic up here everyone is terrified of cane toads because they think that if you touch them you're going to get poisoned but that's not the actual fact you have to um, hit the cane toads really hard for them to um, excrete their poison and you can actually pick them up and handle them and that's exactly what my daughter does and she's been doing that from two years old so I have to deal with her picking up cane toads and treating them as pets and educating people about 
cane toads. So it's been really interesting. But yeah, she's right up that alley. She's been catching lizards and frogs. Instead of um, discouraging it, I'm more so encouraging it because yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. It sounds like a household uh, made in National Geographic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really fortunate up here because we've still got a lot of our frog species and all of our lizards and that. So overnight time, we'll go out with a torch and we'll see what kind of species we can identify. So up here, we've got a really cool native species of frog. It's called a marbled frog and it gets really confused with the cane toad. So just making sure that I take every opportunity to educate people about the differences between between cane toads and native frogs and not to kill them and um, educate yourself so you're best placed to make those decisions about safeguarding the environment. When you say not to kill them, uh, I hear a different story. People believe that uh, the cane toad is an invasive uh, introduced species that's actually wreaking havoc in the environment. Yes, it is. But people, um, they mistake a, the native frogs for the cane toads as part of my certificate foreign training and assessment. My first opportunity, it was, was a 20-minute presentation. So I actually brought a couple of cane toads in at different life stages. So I had an adult and I had um, a young adult and a juvenile cane toad. And we actually went through an intensive regime of identifying a cane toad properly from a native frog. So everyone re- really enjoyed that. So yes, they are an invasive species. Yes, they do wreak havoc on the environment, but you can dispose of them hum- humanely. I don't really like hearing of people spraying them with dead oil because it just hurts them. The best thing to do is pop them in a plastic bag, pop them in the freezer, let them go to sleep, let them die that way, then dispose of them correctly. And making sure you're not killing the native frogs, just the cane toads. The native ones are perfectly... Uh, aligned with the ecosystem and uh, other species can thrive around them whereas the cane toad is uh, one that uh, would be one to actually try to manage its uh, expansion. Yeah, yeah because yeah. they pose a really big threat to our gowanas, bandicoot, crocodiles, freshwater crocodiles, the Johnson's crocodile, um, all of those predatory animals and we're seeing a huge decline even in the frill neck lizards but mostly our goannas but every time i see a goanna it's a really good sign that the ecosystem is fighting back and those native animals are fighting back and dealing with the introduction of the cane toad yeah and i just wrap up our conversation can you summarize for us how you manage work-life balance in your dream job, managing the environment, living on country, and uh, yeah, still uh, fully immersed in culture. So being a single mum and having a daughter who was, she was just turned two when I um, first took this opportunity. So obviously working in the mining industry, um, we work long hours and there's different arrangements. There's FIFO, from the fly-in, fly-out. The only option that I could manage as a young single parent was having to move here, so living here residentially in the community. So I start at 7am in the morning and I'm really fortunate that there's a daycare here that opens up at 6.30 and closes at 5.30. So I drop Darcy off at 6.30 in the morning at daycare and then I make my way to work and I work from 7am to 3.30pm and then I go to the gym um, to manage my (laughs) own mental health and physical health and then I go pick Darcy up and we're really fortunate here um, within Nullumboy. We've got heaps of different 
extracurricular activities on offer for the kids. So Darcy's enrolled in ballet, jazz and acrobatics. There's swimming, there's touch footy, there's so many opportunities. It's a really good um, community for families who are looking to relocate here. That was one of the big reasons which which is why I um, opted for Nullumboy as opposed to other sites like Weeper, Gladstone, uh, I heard some, from some people that some of uh, these towns are childcare deserts. There's nothing for ch- for children to actually to entertain them and um, support their development. But it sounds like uh, Nolumba is uh, very, very well equipped and uh, catered for. It's a thriving community up here. The kids run the town, anyone who lives here. But you see kids as young as five to six-year-olds riding to school. It's it's a really good community because there's only 3,000 people living here. Um, everyone knows everyone's kids. So if Darcy goes, if we go to dinner at the boat club, she'll instantly recognise at least 10 of her different playmates and it's a really safe environment. Um, that's why we're still living here, <laughs> really. Can you find me a job? Yeah. <laughs> depending I'd, on what you want to do. <laughs> I'd move there immediately because it sounds like a, a paradise on earth. Yeah, and the fishing. Um, me, I, I'm a really big... I grew up in Darwin, so obviously I like fishing. Um, and the fishing is just next to none here. The waters oh. are pristine, crystal clear, snorkeling. It's just... It's got such a great opportunity for a life here and that's why I'm so fortunate and grateful that I have the opportunity to live here but also be recognised by the traditional owners and welcomed here to their country. I'm really, really fortunate. Um, I do know that a lot of people don't get to work in the field that they are really passionate about, especially as an Indigenous person working in the environment. I think there's a lot of people out there, especially Indigenous people, who just really value that line of work and that's what fuels my passion and keeps me here. Julene Pontoriero, thank you very much for sharing your story with us on NITV Radio today. Thank you. And that's all we have for today's program. You can listen back to the program anytime or catch any of the stories on our website at sbs.com.au. NITV Radio will be back this Friday with more stories from across the country. I'm your host, Nori Pakai, and have a great day.